right. Well, good morning, everyone. I want to invite you, if you're in the foyer, to grab your beverages and come on back in and take your seats. We'll continue with our morning together. My name's Brad. I'm part of uh, the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge, and uh, I want to welcome you here. As we uh, move into our teaching time together this morning, I want to tell you the story of a small town, a small Danish town named Aarhus. I'm not sure that I'm pronouncing that correctly at all, so you have to apologize. Uh, I apologize if that's part of your heritage. Uh, but back in 2012, this cute little Danish town started noticing something unique or something different was beginning to happen for them. The local police started receiving phone calls and the phone calls were panicked parents of young adults and uh, upper teenagers and the parents would call and say, my kids have gone missing. And so the police began to investigate a little bit more and try and figure out what was happening. And after sleuthing around a little bit more, uh, two of the officers, Thorleaf Link and the chief of police, Alan Arslov, who's pictured here, they discovered what was happening. And what was happening was that in their small little town, 34 young adults had heeded the call that had gone out online from ISIS and had gone to places like Syria and tried to become part of building uh, a new Muslim state. And while governments around Europe took very, very different strategies to this challenge, some cracked down very, very hard. They took away passports from people who were suspected of maybe wanting to travel. Uh, but this little town, Aarhus, decided they were going to take a different approach. They'd already lost 34. And instead of condemning the young men and branding them as terrorists, the chief of police... Arslev and Officer Link stood up and declared publicly that if those people left, they were welcome to come home. They were welcome to come back to Aarhus. And when they returned, they said, we will help you. We will find you a place to live. You'll be connected to resources. And we'll try and help figure out why you didn't feel at home here. And they had seen what was happening in different parts of Europe and how cracking down hard was further radicalizing some of these young men. And so they said to them, you come to our office, we'll help you get an apartment. We'll put you on track to finish school. We'll get you counseling. We'll get you a mentor. We'll figure out what do you need to integrate into Danish culture. And the word got out that Arslov was welcoming their boys home and a surprising thing happened the young men actually started coming back and not only that but boys from other places in Denmark started to come to Arslev and say we hear that there is a welcome here for us too and of the 34 who left in 2012 so far 18 have come back and been fully reintegrated into society and hundreds of others from other towns in Denmark have come back home. And they interviewed this chief of police and said, why did you do this? 
Why not take a hard line and say, if you come home, you're going to be punished for what you've done. You've made bad choices. And he said, as we see it, coming down hard on these young, radicalized Muslim men will only make them angrier and more dangerous to society. Helping them is the only chance that we have to keep an eye on them and also just to keep the peace in our little town. See, these two Danish officers did something that others were not willing to do. They flipped the script when it came to handling these young men who were trying to join ISIS. They welcomed them when other communities were rejecting them and saying, if you leave here, you are not welcome at all. They extended a courageous and confident grace to them instead of punishing them. And for their town, it's working. This month uh, at Jericho, we've been in a series called The Pursuit. And we've been looking at uh, the parables that Jesus told in the Gospel of Luke, particularly those in chapter 15. And they're all stories about things that have lost, become lost, or wandered away. The first story in Luke 15 is about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, and one of the sheep wanders off. And the shepherd, instead of saying, oh, well, that's all right, we got lots of sheep here still, goes after, leaves the 99 sheep, goes after the one sheep, and searches until the lost sheep is found, and then carries it home on his shoulders, calls all the neighbors together, and says, let's celebrate, uh, because my pursuit of the lost sheep was successful. And then Pastor Wally took us through the story of the lost coin, the woman who has 10 coins and loses one in her house. And so instead of saying, that's all right, I'm still doing okay financially, she sweeps her house till she locates this. This is a treasure for her. And we're told that there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one person who is a sinner repents and turns to God. Amen. And then last week, in, uh, we experimented with a bit of a different style of uh, learning for our Epic Sunday. We took an imaginative prayer journey in word and in song through the parable of the lost son, sometimes known as the parable of the prodigal son. And one of the things that we need to keep in our heads as we round out the stories that Jesus tells in Luke 15 here is the purpose that Jesus had in telling these stories. What is Jesus trying to get across to his original listeners and also to us? And Luke highlights that for us, tells us right at the beginning of chapter 15 in verse 1 and verse 2, Luke says that Jesus is specifically responding to concerns that the Pharisees and teachers of the law have because they're upset that Jesus is hanging around with people who are lost, people who are seemingly far away from God. They're notoriously sinful. And so Jesus speaks these stories and these parables into that scenario. And if you think about it, Sinners are people who are not living in congruence with God's vision for flourishing human relationships or those who are choosing to actively violate and disregard God's laws. They can see themselves very clearly in these stories in Luke chapter 15. As a sinner, you're listening to Jesus and you think, yeah, I get it. I'm in the story of the shepherd, I'm the sheep that's wandered off. <laughs> I understand that, who I am in that story. 
Or in the story of the coin, yeah, I'm the coin that's been lost, and then God's going to come after me. And then the son, I get it, I'm the son who ran away from home. So those are the expected things that we would uh, anticipate that they might take away from Jesus' storytelling venture. But what's unexpected in this is the picture that Jesus gives of God. See, Jesus flips the script. If you're a tax collector, if you're a notorious sinner, you, you believe that the fundamental image that you have of God is that if I try and come close to God, God's going to say, whoa, 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 we got some issues to deal with here. This is a big problem. You, you need to be uh, cast back out. Because the tax collectors and sinners expect Jesus to describe how God's going to meet them at the door with punishment. And yet the father in the parable of the lost son runs out to this lost son, welcomes him home, forgives him and reintegrates him into the family just like those Danish police officers did. And it's not to minimize or downplay God's judgment or his justice, but Jesus is trying to flip the script here. He's trying to help people understand what God is like. And so he gives a clear picture of God as the father in the last parable and that they, if they would choose, are welcome to come home. And so the recklessness of God's gracious pursuit of them would have likely surprised them because in each of the parables, God is portrayed as the one who is determined to seek and to search and to find those who are lost and bring them home. And then God's going to celebrate when that happens. But if this would have been surprising for the tax collectors that were listening and the notorious sinners that were listening, it was really surprising and fairly offensive for the religious people. And so Jesus tells another story. Actually, it's a continuation. It's part two of a story that he already began. And this story is perhaps the most surprising of any of the stories because it's very, very clear that this story is aimed not at the people who are lost. It's aimed at those who already think that they are found. So I'm going to reread the story Uh, beginning in verse 11 of Luke chapter 15. And when it comes to the section that we'll focus on today, it'll come up on the screen uh, behind me. Luke chapter 11 in verse, sorry, Luke 15, starting in verse 11, Jesus says, to illustrate the point further, Jesus told this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So the father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, the younger son packed up all of his belongings, moved to a distant land. There he wasted all of his money in wild living. And about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, 
at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am, I'm dying of hunger. I'm going to go home. I will say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. And he was filled with love and compassion for him. He ran to his son. He embraced him. He kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house. Put it on him. Get a ring for his finger. Sandals for his feet. Kill the calf that we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead. And he's now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. That's the end of Act 1. Now it's Act 2, starting in verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was out in the fields working. And when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants, what was going on? Oh, your brother's back, he was told. Your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry. He wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved for you. Never once refused to do a single thing you've told me to. And all that time, you never even gave me one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf? And his father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me. Everything that I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. What's fascinating to me about this story is or this section of the story, is that it even exists at all. Because the first part of the story, by the end of verse 24, is very tidy and self-contained. The son has lost, he's been found, they're having a party, and curtain, the happy ending that we all wanted, is achieved. There's really nothing more to the story to tell, or is there? But see, that's not the end of Jesus' story. Because remember, in the story, there's two sons. And in my thinking on the older son, I'm indebted to author and pastor uh, Timothy Keller. Several years ago, he wrote a book called The Prodigal God. And I was so struck by his depiction uh, of the story of the elder son. Because really, of all of the parables in Luke 15, this one is probably the one I see myself in the most. So what do we see in this story that Jesus tells of the older brother 
and the Father. I think it's, it's interesting that the first emotion that we encounter in the older brother is that he's angry. He will not go inside to celebrate the return of his younger brother. Think for a moment about what that says to everyone who's gathered inside for the party that the father is throwing. The, the eldest son, a member of the family, will not come in to full participation in something that probably for the father was the most joyful day of his whole life. See, the younger son insulted the family by demanding his inheritance. It was as if saying to his father, I wish you were dead. I'm just going to take what's owed to me now. Thank you very much. And so the family integrity and honor was definitely besmirched there. But now the older son actually insults the family by essentially saying, I am going to make a statement here. I don't want to be a part of this family if he is in it, being the younger son. He has squandered all of your money. And not just on like, other things he names specifically. He says he squandered it on prostitution. And now he's come home. And instead of making him grovel, you throw a party? No. I can't do it. I'm not going to go in. If I go in, by my presence, I'm saying that I condone this kind of ridiculous behavior. And I cannot dignify that by my presence at table together with you. The most joyful day of the father's life. The oldest son refuses to even peek his head in the door and participate in his joy. See, pay attention to the parallels between the first part of the story and the second part of the story. Just like the father goes out to meet the son, the younger son who ran away. The father goes out to meet the older son. The father leaves the party that he's hosting to ensure that the elder son understands the value and the love that the father has for him. And the father speaks to both sons with a very similar tone, a very compassionate, very tender, loving tone. He doesn't tip and say that he loves one more than the other. As a loving parent, the father is filled with gracious compassion for both and speaks with tenderness to both of his sons. But we're beginning to see that even though in the beginning of the story, one son left and one son stayed, in reality, both of them are actually separated from their father. We see this coming out in how the older son talks to his dad. He doesn't even call him father. And when he's speaking about the return of the prodigal, he doesn't say, your son or my brother. All he can manage to spit out is, that son of yours. See, we're beginning to see something in the older son. 
we're beginning to see a little bit of the older son's heart. We're beginning to see what the older son cares about. The older son, when he talks about why he won't go in, because this is so ridiculous, he cites as his chief complaint the expenditure of the party. And we do have to give this point to him. This is not an inexpensive uh, party that is being thrown. See, in ancient cultures, as is the case in many, many places around the world today, you don't eat meat on a daily basis because it's just freakishly expensive. And so if you have been uh, saving, if you have a cattle or a calf and you've been saving that calf probably for your livelihood to sell it, either for meat or so that you can make a living, uh, and it might account for the full of your annual income. If you just decide this son comes home and the father's like, that's it, fatted calf, we had another purpose for it, didn't know, but we are killing it right here, right now, today, party is going down. If you're killing an entire cow, this is a big party you're intending to throw. Like the whole village is coming for this party. And so this is not an inexpensive party to throw or a meal to host. And so the older son is upset about the expenditure. And part of this probably comes out of the fact that if you think about the father's gesture towards the younger son, the father has already divided the estate 50-50 and given away a full-on 50% of everything that that family owned to the younger son. So whose share is this now coming out of, this massive expense of feeding the whole village? It's the older son's share of the family wealth. It's coming out of his 50%. And so the older brother doesn't care that his younger brother has returned safely back home. He cares mostly that his inheritance money is being spent not on him and in a way that he does not approve of. And so we begin to see that the older brother doesn't actually care about the father. The older brother cares about the father's things more than he cares about the father's heart. He's more concerned about the economics of this than he is about the deep expression of love. And in Luke 15, 31, the father speaks tenderly to the older son. And he reminds him of the reality. He says, my son, you have always been with me. It's a relational value statement that he's making. And remember in this story, Jesus is clear that the father in the story represents God. And that God wants us to experience that withness, life together with God. But the older brother misses this. The older brother just throws it back in the father's face. And he throws back in the father's face all of the activity that he has been doing for the father. He says, I've been so busy for you. I've been slaving. Listen to his language. 
not just working, not just partnering. I've been faithful. I have been slaving away for you. This is where we need to pull back from the story for a minute and ask a question about our own lives, about activity versus a with God kind of life. See, the challenge for many of us is that we can get very, very focused on activity, religious and good activity. And we can become so focused sometimes on doing things for God that we miss the invitation to be with God. So focused on doing good things for God that we miss spending time with and engaging with God and finding out what's on God's heart. And this can be especially true in a place the size of Jericho Ridge at the stage that we're currently at as a community. We've moved into a new building in November. There is no shortage of things to do. We have lots of renovations coming up this summer. We have lots of new neighbors, evangelism and outreach to focus on. We have lots of new people uh, coming that we want to make welcome. We have lots of ministry gaps that need to be filled. We have uh, lots of complicated things that we want to manage well. And so it can be very easy to say to ourselves, all right, we need to ratchet up serving commitments and time commitments, and just get through this busy season doing stuff for God. And the challenge can be that if we do that at the expense of engaging with God, then we may get a lot done, but it may not be very productive or long-lasting. We'll get very busy doing things for God and miss the invitation to be with God. And in my own life, I know this happens. This comes at, uh, oftentimes at the expense of time with God. There's a little block uh, in my calendar every morning that says time with God. And when I get up in the morning, I think, oh man, I have a lot to do today. It would be more productive if I just kind of abbreviated, shortened that time, just plowed into getting some things done already. And we can skimp on relationship with God in order to get important things done for God. This is the problem that the older brother, it's one of the problems the older brother has. Look at the, the phrase he uses in Luke 15, 29. He says, I have slaved for you. I have never once refuse to do a single thing that you have asked. This kid has some issues with boundaries. Saying no to things is not his strong suit. But have you ever found yourself talking that way about your involvements in the church or in places where you serve? God, I am over here. I am slaving away for you. And nobody cares. Nobody even notices how hard I am working for you. Never once do I even say no. I say yes, I help out with everything around here. Nobody cares. Other people are sitting around doing nothing. Well, I'm just killing myself for you. Let me be clear. 
friends. Here at Jericho, we are more interested in developing your relationship with God than we are in what you can do for God or for or with us. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. There's stuff to do. Doesn't mean we don't call each other to places of service, places of sacrifice, but it does mean that if you are too busy to slow down and be with God, you're too busy. And it might not just be Jericho commitments or serving commitments that are making that reality for you. But ask yourself this question. This week, if you look at your calendar, how much time are you intending to invest in connection with God? Things like corporate worship, things like your own time engaging with scripture, time in silence and solitude and prayer. How much time are you investing in serving? What's the balance between those two things for you? And this is particularly challenging for two types or groups of people. One is for people who are wired up activistically. Like they're just people who have a personality that just is in there and getting her done. I'm definitely wired up like that. And it's tempting for me. And the other group that it's tempting for is people that work for or with religious organizations. So some of you do that. You work and serve either in a university setting or you work in a mission setting or you work. So that line between doing things for God and being with God is a complicated one because it involves some of your employment relationships as well. And so that's, that's a challenge to name and to work through. But it can be so easy to miss God's heart because we're so busy being about God's business. And if that's you, over time, you're going to end up like the older son. You're going to end up bitter. You're going to end up burned out. You're going to be angry at God. You're going to be angry at the community around you. But the real issue might not actually lie with how hard you've been working or not working. It may well lie in how little time you've spent with the Father. The problem may not be everyone or everything else. It may be your connection with God and your calendar. And that's the great irony of this second part of the story. Number one, the fact that it exists at all. And number two, we actually don't know how the story ends. Jesus is not a very effective storyteller. <laughs> the father goes out, speaks to the older son, invites him to come to table. We don't know if he accepts the invitation or not. We are left to assume no, that in his anger, the older son stays outside in his bitterness and refuses to enter the joy that the father and the younger son and their community are experiencing together. But I think one of the reasons why Jesus doesn't finish the story is he wants the question to kind of hang in the air for us to wrestle with. 
And the question is, which son is really lost? See, we call this the parable of the prodigal son. And when we do that, we usually mean the son who left. But in the end, that son actually comes home. And the older son, I would argue, is really the prodigal, not the younger one. Because at the end of the story, the reckless son is found. But the eldest son, for all we know, ends up lost and outside of relationship with the Father. So you remember, Jesus is speaking not only to people who are living far away from God in their own lives, but he's also speaking to religious people who feel and who think that they are likely living close to God. And yet the son who kept all of the rules, the son who never did anything stupid or reckless, in the end, is the son who ends up lost. That son is kept from the father by his own choices and action. And what's interesting is what's keeping the older son from the father is not his sin like the younger son. It's actually his goodness. Tim Keller in his book, says it this way. You can escape God as much through morality and religion as you can through immorality and irreligion. In other words, you can show up at church every Sunday. You can be involved on ministry teams. You can give to capital campaigns. You can go on cross-cultural service experiences. You can be engaged in all kinds of stuff. And you can still miss the point. You could be the most involved person at Jericho Ridge. And you could still be distant from God because the ladder that you're climbing is up against the wrong wall. See, it's easy to fall into the pattern of thinking like an older brother. An older brother kind of heart is one that makes a pact with God and says, okay, God, this is how this is gonna go down. I'm gonna keep all of the rules. I'm gonna pray hard. I'm gonna try hard. And then you owe me a fairly easy life and you are going to take me to heaven when I die. Sign here, please. <laughs> See, the problem is that God is not bound by that because God is not impressed by how much you do for him. We see in the two verses at the end of this parable, the father, Jesus gives us a real clear indication what the father cares about. The father cares about relationships. My son, you have always stayed with me. The father cares that, that his children experience and know the abundance of everything that belongs to them already. Everything I have, he says, is yours. It's already yours. You don't have to earn it. Work your way into it. And the Father cares that we learn to celebrate 
when lost people get found. He says, we had to celebrate this happy day. For your brother was dead and has come back to life. He is lost, but now he's found. You can get a whole bunch of other things wrong in walking with God. But if you can work on getting those things right, that's incredible. Learning to care and understand what the Father cares about. And the challenge that I find is that I can give mental assent to the fact that I care about these things. And I can say to myself, yep, in my head, I totally am on board with those things. I affirm those things theologically, and yet my actions will give me away. Because we can still act at times as if our relationship with God is rooted in how good we are at being good. But the story of the elder son is here to remind us that you can have never have left home and you can still end up very, very, very lost. You can be very well behaved and still be a total prodigal son or daughter. And so it can be helpful for us to ask ourselves the question, am I trying in any way to impress God or other people by doing what the elder son did, staying and obeying. See, the older son was trying to control the father and his relationship with the father and his acceptance of, of him by the father by obeying all of the rules. But in his heart, he was angry, bitter, stingy, and resentful. He stayed at home, but he certainly did not understand the father and the father's heart. Because he throws it back in the father's face and says, you never even gave me a goat to celebrate with my friends. To whom we should look at it and say, um, question, if the father was willing to liquidate all of his assets and give 50% of the entire estate to the younger son, do you think if he would have asked for a goat, the father would have said no? Of course not. But the older son missed out. Because he was just so focused on slavish obedience instead of a relational encounter with his father. See, in church world, it can become easy to think that well-behaved people are saved and not well-behaved people are not saved. But God is not some kind of cosmic animal trainer who is impressed with your good behaviors. Sit, stay, I'll dole out treats if you can do it on command.